Well, it was a statement of intent. It was the first match of the season, and they were playing their biggest rivals, and they were away from home, and they had won 5-0. And everyone knew that they meant business. It was the first day of S4, and he had mucked about too much last year, but this time things would be different. And as he wrote the date, and as he looked at the teacher, and as he wrote the lesson title on the lovely, clean uh, first page of a jotter that uh, had uh, pages that were just so white, he did so in his neatest writing. And how we begin something says a lot, doesn't it? Tonight we're beginning a new series in Exodus. And in these verses, as this amazing, epic story begins, God starts as God means to go on. God is the main character in the Bible and the main character in this book. And though God doesn't actually speak in these verses, though he's mentioned just three times, what God does in this chapter actually speaks volumes to us. His actions shout louder than any words. And as we look at this chapter, as we look at Exodus 1, I want us to see three things about him as we start this amazing book. Here's the first in verses 1 to 7. As we focus on God, look at the promises he keeps. The promises he keeps, verses 1 to 7. Now, speaking of promises, a list of names at the beginning of a book like this, it might not seem like the most promising uh, beginning, uh, the most exciting way to begin a, a great story. And if you think like that this evening, let me try and persuade you otherwise. Lots of great films, lots of great books have uh, flashbacks, don't they? And before we see, before we start to learn how Israel will get out of Egypt, we're reminded in these opening verses how they got there in the first place. There's talk of Jacob, there's talk of his sons, the, the 12 tribes are named if you include Joseph. There's, there's a journey down to Egypt. And in verse 5, the whole of Israel is in Egypt. It's quite a thought to think of the fact that there are less of them uh, there than the number of us here tonight, or maybe a similar kind of number. God can do amazing things from very small beginnings. In fact, the whole of Scripture would seem to tell us that that is how He tends to like to operate. Not only that, God is still at work when big names die. Jacob, uh, Joseph, the whole of that generation die, and yet God continues his work. That's a really important lesson for us to remember in the Christian life. And I watched part of the memorial service this week for uh, Tim Keller. And when much-loved leaders die, the thing about God is God just keeps on working. And so Genesis ends with Joseph in a coffin and Exodus begins with Joseph and his brothers in coffins. 
And yet from that small beginning, from that, that seeming dead end comes amazing growth. Look at verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And in our fellowship group this week, we began looking at the opening chapters of Genesis. And what we have in Exodus, it, it's creation language. It's God's people fulfilling the creation mandate, fill the earth and subdue it. But you and I, we can miss that all of this was planned. See, it's not just that, uh, it's not that God made the best of a bad situation, that his people kind of ended up in Egypt and he kind of made the best of it. That's how we sometimes think about our lives, isn't it? God just makes the best of the bad mistakes, the bad situation I got myself in. No, it's more than that. It's all planned. Now, verses 1 to 7, they're like, um, if you're reading an article, they're right like a hyperlink. Um, do you know what that is? You're on the internet, you've got a, a window open in front of you, you're reading an article, uh, I don't know, something from the news, and you suddenly see another link embedded in the article. You click on that link, and you go to another window, and you click on the other, another one, and another one, and another one, and very soon you're miles away from the article you were leading, reading. And I think this little passage, verses 1 to 7, it's a bit like that. When we read them, we, we don't just click back to Genesis 1, we get reminders of God's promises. See, the fact God's people go to Egypt is part of God's plan. Listen to Genesis 15. God is talking to Abraham, and listen to this. Listen to what he says. Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. 400 years, four centuries. Just think what that teaches us about God. You and I, we want everything fast, don't, don't we? We want quick growth. We assume that long periods where nothing much seems to happen in church life or our Christian lives, that these are insignificant. But God always works on a different time scale, doesn't he? Genesis 15. What about Genesis 46? God is speaking to Jacob this time. Listen to what he says. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. So the fact they go to Egypt is part of God's plan, but the fact they grow in Egypt is part of God's plan too. God put them in a difficult place. And Egypt was full of opposition and, and temptations. And yet Egypt became the place of growth. Good parents do this with their children, don't they? They allow them to face challenges and difficulties. That's how they grow. So Genesis 15, Genesis 46, Genesis 12. Remember God's promise to Abraham. Remember what God said to Abraham, do you see those stars? Do you feel the sand 
in between your toes. Though you're ancient, though your wife is barren, I will make your descendants more numerous than these. Friends, when is God keeping his promises? When is God working his purposes out? Just in the good times? No, all the time. Some of us are struggling with the fact that so much in our culture today is changing so much. Well, let me remind you as much as I remind myself that God knew about woke and AI and trans and all of that before anyone else. None of these things have taken him by surprise. He knows what he is doing. God is not just keeping his promises when things go well for us or when life is easy. Are you in a situation this evening you wish you weren't in? Do you feel like God has abandoned you? There is no plan B for your life. God knows what he is doing in your life. And God is a husband who keeps his promises to his people, to his bride. Will you trust him? Will you wait for him? But there's a second thing. We don't just see in this passage the, the promises he keeps. We see in verses 8 to 14 the frustration he causes, the promises he keeps. Second thing, the frustration he causes, verses 8 to 14. Now, transitions can be really uh, interesting. Um, transitions of power can be very interesting. I use that word interesting to mean what people often mean when they use the word interesting. They mean terrible or challenging or confusing or difficult. That's really interesting. But we've got a change of leadership in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He doesn't know Joseph, and that is a problem. And this new king has a new policy. He wants to do something about the Jewish problem. And he is not going to be the last tyrant to think like that, is he? Verse 9, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Um, I've been reading a book called The Escape Artist. And it is so dramatic and it is so harrowing that I have had to stop reading it. Uh, the author is the journalist Jonathan Friedland. And in it, he tells the story of Rudolf Verba. In 1944, he became the first Jew to break out of Auschwitz. He broke out to tell the whole world about his experiences. And as so often can happen in these kind of situations, many believed him, but many people didn't want to know. And in chapter 5, he begins to talk about life in the camp. And the title is just three words. We were slaves. We were slaves. 
And it was the same in Egypt. There were taskmasters, there were burdens, there was affliction. It was all designed to keep these people in their place. This is what slave masters and abusers do. They take on a God-like power. They crush the autonomy of others. They obliterate their sense of self. And as God's people, we should be completely opposed to such behavior. Subjugating others, using them for our ends, is behavior that God hates. And what's fascinating is there is absolutely no hint here that God's people were trying to cause trouble. Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Joseph had been a huge blessing to Egypt. And yet now he's forgotten. He's forgotten in life. He's left in prison, remember? Now he's forgotten in death. That teaches us something about human sin, doesn't it? We forget those who've blessed us in the past. That is why your favorite school subject must and should be history. And the slavery here also teaches us something about human pride. Look at the reference to store cities. Store cities, verse 11. And some of the commentators, they they can smell Babel here. In Babel, what happened? Human beings built a tower, didn't they? they? They made a name for themselves. They trusted in their strength. It is an incredibly bleak picture. How many of us tonight would swap places with these believers, with our brothers and sisters, with others who suffer tonight? And yet I've called this point, this point, the frustration he causes. Because look at verse 12. The more they are oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. It's like Psalm 2, isn't it? What, what happens in that Psalm? Human beings rage against God. They rage against each other. And yet, what does God do? God laughs. God holds them in derision. Why? Because he is in control. He has installed his king. And I think what we have in verse 12, it's like when somebody has music on and you're trying to have a conversation and the music, the volume of the music is just turned up and up and up and God is shouting over the noise. The more they're oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. This is a principle that goes on throughout church history. See, when do God's people grow in number? When do God's people grow in their trust of Him? When things are hard? Where is the church growing the most? Where it's harshly opposed, isn't it? When do churches mature? When do individual Christians mature? When have you grown? I bet it wasn't when life was easy. We want to see a healthy gospel church for every community in Scotland. That is the free church vision, isn't it? It's a great hope. It's something to pray for and work for. But what will that vision cost? 
what will it take for that to happen? It will take suffering, won't it? Do we want that? There's no growth without pain. See, look at the response in the second half of verse 12. The spread, it leads to dread. Oppression leads to growth, which leads to more oppression. And if the first half of verse 12, it is, it's surrounded on every side by affliction. Affliction that gets harder. Look at the word ruthlessly, verse 13. It's repeated in verse 14, isn't it? It means severity. It means harshness. It means cruelty. The Christian life is not a picnic. It's a painful pilgrimage, isn't it? There are many sorrows on the way to the heavenly city. We must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. And yet you and I, we do that with our eyes on the true king. You see, verse 8 begins with a dead king and a new king. Well, that king is dead too, isn't he? All the enemies of God's people end up in the grave. But Jesus is alive forevermore. Jesus has got people everywhere. Jesus is building his church. And the gates of hell cannot overthrow it. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit today. And so think about that. Remember that. Trust that. Promises he keeps. The frustration he causes. Lastly, verses 15 to 22, the defiance he inspires. The defiance he inspires. In verse 15, the king of Egypt introduces a new policy, and it focuses on a different kind of labor, we could say. Because his plans are backfiring, he focuses all his attention, all his might on the very weakest, on the maternity war. The whole thing it is as logical as it is brutal, isn't it? If they kill the sons, then not only will there be no more enemies to fight, but Israel's family tree will just wither and die. It's very hard not to think of Herod's extermination policy when Jesus was born. Today, in some countries, children are killed, aren't they, on, on account of their sex. I wonder if you and I tonight, if we really see how wicked this is. I think this story is so familiar, you and I, we can, we can miss the true horror of it. This was an attempt at ethnic cleansing. This was power deployed against the most vulnerable. This was someone very, very powerful trying to control and co-opt others to commit atrocity. And sadly, the reality is that in our world today, this happens all the time. The powerful get others to do their dirty work and they keep their hands clean. And here are women being commanded to do the very opposite of what they were called to do. In fact, it's more than that. They're being commanded to become something. Commanded to become kind of agents of death. Midwives. Now, this slaughter 
of innocence. It never happens today, does it? If you believe that, you'll believe anything. The horror here, actually underlined by the words son and daughter in verse 16, the NIV translates these as boy or girl. But as lots of people point out, son and daughter, they're just so much more relational, aren't they? They add weight to the grief, to the pain this would have caused. And one of the things believers have to think about is how are you and I, how are we going to respond when we are asked to do things that oppose our faith? It can be difficult to decide. When is it right to defy the government? When is civil disobedience appropriate for the Christian? Where is the line? Well, in Exodus 1, the line is miles behind these two women, isn't it? What they're being asked to do is so evil that they have only one option. They fear God, they disobey the king's command, and I think this evening they should be our heroes. They should be our heroes. And I think the author of Exodus wants us to, to view them as heroes as well. You see, some people think that the fact that the new king is unnamed should make you and I question the validity of this account. Can we really date Exodus 1 without that detail, without knowing who this new king is? Surely someone as important as a king would be named. But what if God is making the opposite point? What if the really important people here are these two believers, Shipra and Pua? See, friends, here are two daughters of Eve who stood up to the serpent. See, who is behind this attack? Who's behind every attack on God's children? Satan himself. We have an enemy, we are in a battle. And Shipra and Pua are two spiritual warriors that you and I should admire. If all you remember from this sermon is their names, then I am fine with that. See, some people waste bucket loads of ink debating their lie in verse 19. Don't get yourself in an ethical quandary about that. Don't be so pious to ask, should they have really said that? No, this is no-brainer territory, isn't it? They were just being shrewd. They were doing the kind of thing believers have to do when they are put in an awful situation. And look at God's verdict. Look how God responds to what they've done. He treats them with kindness, doesn't he? He pours out blessing on them. Here are two women who understood the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. They are two role models that you and I should look up to. What does a godly woman look like? Passive? Timid? Or fearless? Or bold? I think, I think this passage answers that question for us, doesn't it? Do you and I ever pray for the children in St. Peter's to be as gutsy as this? I think we should. 
Because this is a chapter that gets darker and darker. God's people are oppressed. God's people grow in number. The, the oppression intensifies. Two women are courageous. And so it all intensifies again. Look at verse 22. Pharaoh is clearly livid. The command goes out to all his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. Friends, listen to Jesus. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. You are worth more than many sparrows. Or to put it another way, fear him you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Well, Exodus is just getting started, and yet even on the very first page, we have met the one who is worthy of worship. We have met the one who rules history. We have met the promise keeper, the protector, the empowerer, the one who fears no one, And if tonight, if we fear him, then neither will we. Let's pray together.